This morning we are continuing our pursuit of what is a biblically healthy church. And so if you've been with us, we've spent a couple of weeks now talking through that. The first week was about the importance of preaching and preaching specifically God's Word. And we talked about um, just how God uses that to form and shape the church and really how that in shapes and forms everything else that we're going to cover. And then last week we talked about the importance of sound doctrine, of why we believe what we believe and why those things are formed by the Word and how it forms our worship services, it shapes our lives, it shapes how we gather and interact with one another. And this morning we come to our third point or importance of a biblically healthy church, and that is the importance of understanding conversion and evangelism. Like how does, how does a true understanding or a biblical understanding of what it means to be born again, how does that impact how we understand what it means to become a new believer, but also how we go and share the gospel? And so we're talking about this idea of why biblical understanding of conversion leads to faithful evangelism. This week in studying, I was just reading and different books and authors and different studies and, and statistics. And man, there are just massive numbers of people who grew up in the local church, who at some point professed Christ, were baptized, but then they moved off to college or joined the workforce and they've stepped away from the church. And the very truths of following Christ. But here's the problem. They're still good people. They're nice people. You work beside them. You live beside them. They may be in your own family. And the danger becomes that because they made some profession of faith back when they were 8 or 10 or whatever. And because they remain to be good people. We continue to affirm that they are in good standing with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I want to appeal to you today. On the basis of of Ezekiel 36, but even John 3, Jesus spoke to one of the most religious men of his day and time. One of the nicest guys, the most morally upstanding men. He was, he was in the temple constantly. His name was Nicodemus. And yet three times, three times, that man heard from Jesus, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you were what, church? Born again. So this morning we're going to ask, what does it mean to be born again? What is true biblical conversion? And here's the reality. Here's what the struggle is. This is why it's so difficult. Ezekiel 36 says that God's people, right, his own Israelite people and all of us, right, it begins to have ramifications to us all. We have a heart of stone. And because we have this heart of stone, we do not desire to submit to God or follow in his ways. Therefore, we need deliverance from another place, from God. And the good news is, as we're going to see here, that biblical conversion is this. Conversion is a work of God that transforms the people of God into the image of God for the glory of God. Hear it again. Conversion is a work of God that transforms the people of God into the image of God for the glory of God. Now we're going to unpack that today and looking at maybe in three different sections of understanding that truth. But as we do, and you make your way to Ezekiel 36, it's important to remember the setting. Ezekiel has been prophesying there and, and warning them about the coming judgment. Again, we're in the period about 588 to 586 BC. But about Ezekiel 31 into 33, a change happens. The reality is the judgment has come and, and Ezekiel begins to look at a different perspective. The people, because of their rebellion against God, have now found themselves in exile in Babylon, and they're wondering, is there any hope? 
You were with us a few weeks back in Ezekiel 37. We talked about that valley of dry bones. They felt like there was no hope for them. And God began to remind them of the hope. And today he's going to share with us further. How is God going to redeem and restore his people? And then as we look big picture of this image of this new covenant and what God's going to do, we begin to see the hope of conversion. And that brings us to our first truth. Conversion is a work of God. Conversion is a work of God. To understand what conversion is, we're going to look at the problem, the plan, and the purpose. Start with me first here, the problem. Look what he says, beginning at verse 25 and 26 of Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Does you notice the problem wasn't like, hey, you know what, you guys are just really good. You got a couple bad habits. We just need to try to work those out. Nor was the problem, hey, you know what, you just, guys, you know what you need to do? You just need to embrace your true self. You just, you do you, that'll fix everything. Be true to yourself, follow your own desires, that'll get you where you want to go. No, the problem is, did you hear it there? Look what he says. Verse 26, I'll remove the heart of stone. Heart of stone. Now, there's not a lot of other pictures of a heart of stone. We think about Nabal, right, when, when there with David and he comes. And, and you remember that, if you know the story there, it says that his heart became like stone. And there's some sort of paralysis, maybe experiences severe stroke. We're not sure. But for like for 10 days, this man can't move, can't respond, and then he dies. It's this indication of what it looks like to be spiritually dead. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we are dead in our sins. Stephen says in Acts chapter 7, as he preaches right before they literally stone him to death, the first martyr of the church, he says, you stiff-necked people. That stiff-necked means they are just like this refusal. Like, I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what anybody does. I don't care about the truth of God's word. I don't care about the truth of Christ. I'm going to do me. He says, you stiff-necked people. You're just like your forefathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. This heart of stone is... You might ask, well, what's a dead heart of stone do? What does it pursue? Well, look back with me at verse 25. I'll sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Verse 31, he says to them, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. So like this indication, right, of this uncleanness in our lives. Well, how do we know we have a heart of stone? It's because we pursue idols. An idol is anyone or anything that you love and cherish more than God. I don't know what your idols are, right? But reality is, if you begin to think about them, it's just a thing that if you didn't have this or that, you just couldn't be happy with it. Like, you'd be miserable if you don't have that. These idols come to us, and Paul speaks about this in Romans 1. You can write down Romans 1, 21 to 25. He talks about how our foolish hearts are darkened. We're like a dead stone. And because of that, we have an all-time favorite idol, Paul says. Ourselves. He says, instead of worshiping the creator who is forever praised, we worship the creature. We worship ourselves. Maybe you feel like, hey, man, you're you're kind of over spiritualizing this text. This heart of stone is just imagery like it. We're not really that bad. Well, Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can know it or who can trust it? Paul says in Romans 3, 11 and 12, that none is righteous. No, not even one. And then he says this. No one seeks God. No one does good, not even one. You see, church, we have a problem, and it's not only that we can't fix it, 
The Bible says that we don't desire to fix it. This is an issue of desire, of the will. It's in bondage to sin. Thus we need to ask, what will be the outcome of a heart that is dead toward God? If you begin to hear this, you say, you know what, Blake, you're, you're, this sounds like the, the Bible's speaking about my life. Those are true about me. I'm hearing that's, that's my pursuit. I heard it when Adam was praying. I begin to experience conviction that I, I'm pursuing the things of the world. Then what will be the outcome of a heart that's dead toward God? Look at me, you would. Back in verse 16 and 19 in this same chapter of Ezekiel 36. The word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel and he says, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. Verse 18 gives it tells us, what God's going to do in response. Look what he says again there in verse 18. He says, I'm going to pour out my wrath upon them. This wrath meant, as he tells us in verse 19, they're going to be scattered amongst the nations. God's judgment comes and they're scattered amongst the nations. But it's also a glimmer here of not only how God is judging his people, Israel, how God will judge us all. Look what it says. Verse, end of verse 19. Look, look at me again to the word. In accordance with their ways and their deeds. Maybe your, your translation says their actions. I judged them. If you've wondered, how will God judge me? He's going to judge you according to your ways and your deeds, your actions. And see, listen, here's where I think we often get out of step. We begin to focus on the fact that our actions and our deeds are really just about something outward. No, they reveal actually something deeper and inward. That our hearts are in bondage to sin. That's why we act that way. I mean, didn't what Jesus said that he says, where do our words come from? Out of the overflow of the what? The heart the mouth speaks. He said, this is what's going on in your heart and your mind. All these impurities and, and defiling thoughts and motives. And they begin to flood out of your mouth. They begin to be expressed in your actions. This is hard to hear, but it's the truth. I, I don't know about you, but you've probably had some point like where you or someone you love, you, you've had to go and you, you've been in that doctor's office. And, and you had to get to hear those results of that PET scan or that blood work or that MRI, or that EKG, or that echo, like whatever it was, and it came back, and like it, it was revealing that, guess what? Things that you didn't want to hear on the inside are actually true. And now listen, you, you can move forward, like, hey, I can mask that outwardly, but at some point, beloved, at some point, what's happening on the inward? It's going to express itself on the outward. And the truth is, you can deny that brokenness, and that pain, and that sin that is in your and my heart this morning, well, we can acknowledge, you know what, God, I got a problem. What's your plan? I can't fix this. I can't clean me. I, I, like, I've been trying, like, just do you. I know all the mottos of our culture and our world. But God, no matter how much swag I try to have or how much I try to hide it or mask it with other things, I'm in trouble. Maybe you wonder, well, hey, if he's going to bring his judgment and wrath, is there any hope? Is there any mercy? Well, look, look what he says. Look at me back verse 25 and 26, hearing about what is God's plan? I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Our sinful hearts have no hope but God. Did you hear it five times in these two verses? I will, I will, I will, I will. 
I will. That's why we're saying conversion is a work of God. This is God doing. Look what he says he's going to do. He's going to cleanse us. Back in verse 25, he's going to cleanse us from our sins. Verse 26, he's going to give you an eyes. He's going to give us a new heart. He's going to remove that heart of stone. That heart that loves the world. That heart that hates others. It's set on bitterness and revenge and attacking and gossiping and tearing down others. He's going to give us a new spirit. Church, he's describing how conversion will happen. And notice it is an act in which God must act first. God is doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. He is cleansing our inward hearts and lives and bringing forth the spirit. Maybe you wonder, well, how will this plan ever come to pass? Well, the fulfillment or the answer of those I will, I will, I will is met in the man, the God man, Jesus Christ. Who comes and lives the life that you and I were called to live to image God perfectly. Therefore, he can go to the cross as a lamb who throughout Israel's history has died in their place. The one who was taking their sin and guilt as they would place their hands on that animal and that animal would be slain. Why? Because the wages of sin is what, church? Death. Someone has to pay. Blood has to be shed. And this one comes. And because he lives perfectly before God, he has no sin of his own. Therefore, God can vindicate his holiness, as we're going to see, and pour out his judgment on his son. But in doing so, in expressing the judgment upon the son, he now can freely offer his grace and mercy unto you and I. Hallelujah. That there's one who dies as our substitute, who takes our judgment and pain, that we, because of him and in looking to him, can receive grace and mercy. Maybe you hear this and think, well, Blake, do I have any part to play in this? Absolutely. Absolutely you do. Listen to what Peter says in Acts 15, verse 8 and 9. And God, listen listen to the imagery that seems to flow out of Ezekiel 36. Listen to these echoes. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Did you hear it? He knows the heart. We're hearing about the giving of the Holy Spirit and the cleansing of their hearts, the very things that Ezekiel 25 and 26 is saying to us. And how does it happen? That's what he says. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. It's faith. It's hearing this good news this morning that conversion is a work of God and yet despite your and my sin, that even in our sin, God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ did what, church? He died for us, Romans 5 and 8. It's the hope of this gospel. It's hearing that amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but praise God, now I see. It brings a transformation. God is doing this work and our eyes are being opened to the truth of the gospel and our sin and yet God's love for us and the sending of the Son. And there becomes repentance and faith, trusting in God. I wonder today, have you turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ? See, I think we ought to consider how this biblical view of conversion, that God does the work of conversion, how it transforms our evangelism. First, if we recognize that conversion is a work of God, then we're not going to use manipulative ways to try to get people to come forward or raise their hand or whatever it may be, right? Evangelism isn't a sales method. We're not just simply trying to stir the right emotions and tell the right story or play the right kind of music that will get people to do it. Beloved, that's not true conversion. we got a heart of stone. Only God can do that work. 
So this frees us up from trying to manipulate people. If I'm being really transparent, there's probably a time when a lot of times I'd finish my message with the best story I could find to try to really stir your heart to get you to act. We just got to trust the word, brothers and sisters, that it's our God that does that work. Secondly, believing that God does the work of of evangelism, of conversion, sorry, believing that God does the work in conversion allows it not to all rise and fall with us. This means, guess what? Absolutely, we want to be clear in sharing the gospel. Absolutely, we want to be faithful in sharing the gospel. But we realize, hey, ultimately, it's God that's doing this work. Why? Because their heart is stone. We have no power in and of ourselves. It is the Word of God by the power of the Spirit of God that changes a man or a woman, a boy or a girl. So listen, beloved, this allows us just to faithfully be the ones who are sharing the Word, but we are trusting God to do the work. And I think there's also hope in this, isn't there? It's a reminder that no heart is too hard for God. Did you hear that today? No heart is too hard for God. Why? Because every heart is hard. Every heart is hard. Not just like, oh, those people are really, like, they really need Jesus. Like, I don't think there's any hope for them. Look at those guys. Look at those girls. Now, the truth is every heart is hard, but the good news is of the gospel is that God is willing and able So first, listen, conversion is a work of God. Secondly, it brings us to our other part, our second truth. Conversion is a work of God that transforms the people of God into the image of God. So conversion is to transform the people of God, right? It conforms us to the image of God. Listen to this. Back to verse now 27 of Ezekiel 36. God says, and I will put my spirit within you and listen to the statement and cause you to walk in my statutes And be careful to obey my rules. Did you hear that? When God acts in this way, when we are, as Jesus says in John 3, born again, what happens on the inside? What produces this change, this transformation of our lives? It's it's the Spirit of God that now indwells us. It is God's feeling of us. I will put my spirit within you. And the result, the cause of this, the impact of the spirit of God coming into a man or a woman who repents and receives this gospel. He says, as a result of this, it will cause you to do the very things you have not been doing. To walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. As he says at the end of verse 31, in response to these ways in which they live, look what he says, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. There will be finally a cut to the heart. That's what happens in Acts 2, isn't it? Peter's up there preaching. Acts 2, verse 37, it's the day of Pentecost. And Peter says to them in the previous verses, Listen, this Jesus whom you crucified, he's both Lord and Christ. And says the people are cut to the heart. Like they experience like, oh no, we've killed the Messiah. They cry out, what must we do to be saved? Maybe that's a heart of yours this morning. You're being cut to the heart. The word of God by the power of the Spirit this morning is like slaying you like a sword. The living and acting word of God. And they cry out, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit, this cutting to the heart. God is working, resulting in us walking in God's statues and ways. Paul says something similar in Philippians 2. 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, right? That's what he says there. It will verse in verse into verse 27 here, Ezekiel 36, and be careful to obey my rules. Paul pulls seemingly somewhat from that same type of thought process. Therefore, my beloved, again, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You think, man, I'm in trouble. How am I ever going to do that? Listen to what Paul says. He says seemingly echoing the same thing in verse 27 here in Ezekiel. For, here's the strength to live this life. For, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Did you hear it? God is at work impacting and affecting our will and our desires. That's the good news of the new birth. Because if not, you and I are abandoned to ourselves. If we don't have the spirit of God indwelling us, If we've not truly been born again, do you see it? That's why false conversion can never produce the holy life of God. Because God must indwell the believer. The Spirit of God must indwell us. Because as a result of God's Spirit living within us, it changes our will. It transforms our desires into the image of Christ. But maybe you say, you know what, Blake, like, well, hey, man. That may be true, brother, but like we still sin and stumble. So what about that? Even as believers, like I still mess up. Like I've been really aware of that. Man, I struggled last night just sleeping, just just thinking about just just sin in my life. Just thinking about some of the, the heart problems I still have, and just like, man, Lord, why? I'm embarrassed of that. Like, God, I don't want to be that. I don't, Lord, even if I don't say the words outwardly, Lord, just the fact that those sinful desires and those things are just ruminating in my heart and my mind. You see, though, church, the evidence of the new birth is not that you and I never sin. No, the evidence of the new birth is the fact that when we do sin, we repent and return back to the Word of God. So when I ask you, in your battle with sin, believer... And hearing God's word, and whether it's preached or taught or in your own reading time, or maybe it's a rebuke from another person, are you hearing that and submitting to it, or are you rebelling against that? See, again, the evidence of the new birth is not the fact that you and I never sin. We still do, right? John says, if anyone claims to be without sin, he's a liar. But the question is, how are you responding? Are you repenting? Are you turning and looking unto Christ? Pastor Bobby Jameson points out how First John describes a person who has now has a heart of flesh and is filled with the Spirit. Listen to these just different characteristics. I want to ask you, as you hear this list, I want you to begin wondering, does this describe my life as a professing believer? Right Again, because conversion is a work of God that transforms the people of God into the image of God. Listen to this, these characteristics from First John. First John chapter 1, verse 6. This new believer, they desire fellowship with God here and now. Not just in heaven. Further, verse, chapter 1, verse 6 of 1 John. They understand that following Jesus means discipleship, not just a one-time decision. Third, they're eager to confess their sins to God and to turn away from those things. Chapter 1, verse 9. Fourth, they hold grace costly and their own desires cheap. They hold grace costly and their own desires cheap. Fifth, here's, now we move to chapter 5 here. A couple statements. 
They love fellow Christians and the local church because he or she loves God. God's love compels us to love one another. It loves the fellowship of the believers. We don't want to forsake this assembly because God is indwelling us and his love is compelling and urging us. Sixth and last, they obey out of love for God, not duty. Chapter 5, verse 2 and 3. So could I ask you, does that list, is it, is it identifying your life as a follower of Christ? If not, I urge you to turn to the Lord by looking unto Christ, by grace through faith. It is not of yourselves. Ephesians 2, 8 9 says, it is not by works, but it's the gift of God so that no one shall boast. <clears throat> to paraphrase John Piper, I don't know I'm alive because I have a birth certificate. I know I'm alive because I'm breathing. It's similar when it comes to genuine salvation. Our focus isn't like, oh, listen, I got to hear all about your moment of salvation. Like, did you really, really mean it? No, the Bible doesn't say be sincere. It says be saved. Be saved. Hear this gospel and respond. And so the question is, do you know, are you breathing? And Jesus says, guess what? The way you know that you're breathing, the way that you know that you're living as a follower of Christ, you're bearing fruit. He says, it's by your fruit that you will recognize them. The fruit, right? We can't see the root of everybody's life. We can't see in their soul. But Jesus says that you look at their outward actions and their way of life. There's a change. Why? Because Ezekiel 36 and 27 says that when the Spirit of God comes into your eye and He changes our hearts, He will cause us to walk in His ways. And again, this, this, this view of the work of God transforming us. It, it, it transforms our evangelism, how we talk about salvation. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us like, hey, you need to go and ask everybody, did you really, really mean it when you prayed and asked God to forgive you? Well, they might have in that moment, but it, listen, ongoing. Is their life bearing the fruit that that moment, that profession was genuine? It wasn't like, did you pray the right prayer, say the right magical formula? No, Paul says, test yourselves, look at your life. Is your life manifesting that you are a follower of Christ? Is the fruit pointing to the true, genuine root? You see, assurance, it doesn't just rely upon what we said. Yeah, it's important, right, that we are repenting of our sins and confessing Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Paul's talking about that in Romans 10. But it's not just about what we say, church. It's also about what we see. And that brings us to an important part of evangelism and the keeping of our souls. We need to, guys, it's not just staring at ourselves. We need to open up our lives and ask others, look at me. Brother, sister, do you see evidence that I've been transformed? Consider that. How about those nearest to you that know you best? Are they seeing the evidence that you've been transformed? Again, I think it's something that we so often miss, the importance of the local church, the believers around us. We need one another to encourage, to affirm, at times to rebuke and speak truth that we may not want to hear. But brothers and sisters, we need others around us to bring that ongoing affirmation that, hey, what you profess to believe, whether that was five years ago or 50, brother, sister, I see this ongoing work of God in you. <clears throat> Again, Conversion is a work of God that transforms the people of God into the image of God. And this last truth is this, for the glory of God. 
Conversion is for the glory of God. Look what he said. Uh, rewind the story just a little bit. Verse 22 and 23 of Ezekiel 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations in which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. He further says in verse 32, it is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Why is God doing all of this work of transformation of his people? For his own glory. And you say, again, our twisted view of culture and how that like, feels like so prideful, like, oh, man, I didn't think we we're supposed to be prideful. No, there's actually one that is right, that all f- attention and glory and honor be given to. And that is God alone. And it's fitting and it's right. <clears throat> Thus, God says to them, listen, guys, I-, I want you to know the sending of you into exile was to vindicate my holiness. In short, you can't just live any way you want because you got the stamp that, hey, you know what? God's our God. We can do anything we want. Listen, he says, guys, not only are you deceiving yourself, you are deceiving the other nations around you into thinking if that's what it means to be one of God's people, we must be good too. 3,000, almost 3,000 years later, and the same issues remain, don't they? People claim that they are followers of Christ and yet they live like the world. And it just deceives those that are around them into thinking they must be good with God too. Thus God is going to act for the sake of his name. For his own glory and renown amongst the nations by sending his own people into exile. But guess what? The story God's saying here, it doesn't end with exile. God's going to act by bringing his people back out of Babylonian captivity, putting them back in the promised land. And again, he doesn't do it by some military might or power, but by the changing of the heart of Cyrus of Persia. And he sends the people back. He's going to act. And guess what? In, In some ultimate way, he's going to act by what? Forming the church. That there's going to be a people that are not only just Jews, but also Gentiles. As Jeremiah 31 says, and we studied some in Sunday school this morning, he's going to bring forth this new covenant where he's transforming our hearts of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. Where the Spirit of God now indwells us and we are transformed. You see, the truth is when we study thinking about God's glory, sometimes it's hard. It's, it's not easy to find glory. It's like if I said, hey, I was going to teach you music, like, in some way, there's some easiness to that, right? Because, you know, there's notes or instruments. You might even hear a song. But what if we start to talk about beauty? Beauty is like one of those words that maybe we, we talk about. Like it's, it's like sometimes hard to capture, isn't it? You see, I think with beauty, it often is like we need to see it. And when we see it, we're like, there it is. That's beauty. Like I may not be able to adequately describe it or define it to you. In some ways, that's like the glory of God. It's like this idea of trying to capture who this God is. And our words, just they're just not adequate. They fall short. But we pray that by the faithful preaching of the Word and the work of the Holy Spirit, that week after week, you're beginning to say, I see it! I see it! There it is! I want to ask you, do you love what you see? Do you love the God that you see here? The God who is holy and righteous and just, and he would be just in sending you and I into exile in hell for eternity. But in his love and kindness, he sent forth his only begotten son that this morning, if you would believe 
on him, you would not perish, but you would have everlasting life. This hope of the gospel. I hope and pray that this morning your eyes are open and you're like, oh man, I see it. See it. You're saying that, that, that God loves me? Yeah. And this God can change your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And He can place His Spirit within you. And the result will be a new creation, Paul says. Behold, the old is gone. The new has come. It's transformation from the inside out. And, and with that, right, we, 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 guys, we want the nations to know it, don't we? I mean, in fact, Jesus seems maybe again to maybe echo some of these words here. In Matthew 19, He said, I tell you the truth, anyone that's left father or mother, brother or sisters, lands or homes or houses for the sake of the name. You see, Jesus assumes that His name is so great and so glorious and so cherished by His people that we would be willing to risk our job to have that interaction. That we might risk our social media cloud and all that to not put on that proud jersey as a hockey player. Like those, I mean, there's moments that are just costly in our lives. But Jesus assumes that our holding fast to this gospel is so worth it. His glory is so beautiful that we're willing. To leave all those things, whatever it may cost. Right? The old song, the cross before me, the world behind me. No what, church? No turning back. No turning back. See, church, in light of this God whom we have, we must consider the nations who do not know the truth of this gospel. Folks often ask, like, why would you leave here? There's lost people here everywhere. And my response so often comes back, one, it's ultimately the glory of God. But there's no access in those places. Here there are churches, there are Christians. But man, throughout so much of the world, and again, I want, I want kiddos to hear this because I'm praying that by God's grace, He'll just plant seeds little by little. And then as you begin to grow and mature, your heart just begins to stir for the nations to contemplate. Man, who's going to share with them? Who's going to warn them that there's judgment and hell awaiting, but there's a blessed Savior that has come and given His only begotten life that they could be born again, not by works, but by grace and believing and trusting in Him. For the sake of His name. Name is that great and that glorious. Again, as we've done at the end of each of these, we've tried to just contemplate just briefly, like maybe where we are, where we need to head. And so maybe how does this view of conversion and evangelism impact our church? Well, currently impacts that we just slow down membership. It doesn't mean that somebody has to ace any kind of Bible test to become a member. But they need time to make sure they articulate and can understand what is the gospel? What are you even saved from? Who is God? Understanding the truth about God is creator, our man is fallen, Christ is savior, and our call to respond and believe on that gospel. In short, that's one of the things we've changed. I, man, it's just hard to do that during the last stanza of just as I am. You're trying to hear and listen and articulate. Beloved, we want to steward well the souls of others. The conversion is true and genuine, so we just slow down, have some conversation for a moment. Another way that this truth about conversion shapes our church is in how we celebrate baptisms. When you hear the testimonies of people, guess what? The focus isn't just so much, oh, I prayed a prayer and this is what happened. No, we are talking about, hey, this is how God is already beginning to change my life. Right? Is this who I was? 
Here's that moment, right? And those times in which God convicted me and I repented and believed. But here is already some manifestation of God's grace, of this new creation, of this obedience by the Spirit of God indwelling me. Similarly, when we take the Lord's Supper, right? It's not only just baptism, but the Lord's Supper. Right? We, we call you to say, hey, listen, this is who can take and this is who can't. It's not because of decisions we made, but this is what the Scriptures say. And every time we pause and slow down to say, examine yourselves. Why? Because conversion and evangelism isn't just about those people. It's also about us. It's about our souls. It's about us faithfully pursuing and continuing to walk in obedience. How might it transform us as we move forward, this view of conversion? I think we have to realize that as we look at our church membership, we've got a responsibility to the souls of others. We've got people, guys, I've been here 18 years that are on our rolls. I've never seen them in 18 years. We have a responsibility to their soul to say, brother, sister, I, I, don't, I haven't seen, I don't know anything about your walk with the Lord. We, we are called, brothers and sisters, to walk beside one another and to continue to provide that affirmation. We're not serving their souls well, and guess what? We're not serving the souls of this community well. I'm just saying, hey, guess what? It doesn't mean anything, Harley, to be a member of the church. You don't have to go or show up. As long as you're on the book, you're good. No, beloved, that's not it. Conversion, new birth is more than that. So I want to encourage us. That's one of the ways in which we can examine and pray. How can we move more faithfully forward as a biblical church? Lastly, to the non-believer in the room. I hope and pray that you've heard the gospel of who God is, this holiness of, as he says, verse 23, the holiness of my great name, that he's the creator God who created you in his image. And yet the truth is we're just like the people of Israel. We have a heart of stone. It's rebelled against God. We don't want to hear that. Close the book on that already. That's enough. But the good news is that even in the midst of our sin, God sent his only son to live the life we were called to live, who accepts the judgment of God and pays it in full and declares it's finished. And now you and I can receive grace and mercy in response. I want to ask you today, what's keeping you from coming and resting in Christ? Will you come? Will you come and rest in Him? Stop relying upon your good works. Just resting in what Christ has done for you. I hope and pray you will. I hope and pray that you will come responding to this gospel before it's too late. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Hear this gospel and respond. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of conversion. I'm aware that this very conversation and topic, this discussion this morning, may create angst in the heart and minds of some that are truly your children. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will reveal to them the fruit of that is being born in their life, that it won't create doubt, but instead it will cause them to examine themselves and say, oh God, thank you. I see, Lord, the work you're doing. I pray that it also might activate the church to look around to other believers and that we'd be intentional, Lord, to encourage one another. Brother, sister, I see God changing you. Brother, sister, be encouraged. But Father, I realize that it also will create angst and anxiety about those that we love and care about. We begin to wonder about their souls. Father, I pray that we'll not try to pacify that this morning, but instead it will cause us to come and cry out to you, oh God, do a work. God, if they're truly in you, Lord God, 
do a work, that they will begin to produce fruit. If they're not, then God, open their eyes. Don't let them be deceived, God. I pray, O oh Father, in light of this text, that it will move us to pray and to cry out to you to do the work of new birth, the work that only you can do, that transforms us into the image of your Son for your glory alone. We pray this in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.